I will introduce the next panel. It's a real pleasure to have this trio here today. And uh, Smooth is a constant collaborator to Forum since uh, many years. And uh, he always have these wonderful ideas of uh, putting a panel together to discuss uh, very timely issues. And this panel will be looking at belonging in a sense of a polemical and complex uh, contingency of, uh, of being and against uh, uh, the reality of the history of race and immigration in the United States, and particularly in the context of the current political climate of resurgent nativism and nationalism. And, uh, uh, Smooth and his guests will try to respond to the assault of on otherness and drawing upon the creative practices of uh, both artists, their backgrounds and their individual experiences and how to produce their work. I will go on to introduce uh, Smooth Zewi. Smooth is a, an artist actually who hides behind the curatorial cap and art historian uh, academic function um, and curate. So Smooth is an artist and the curator of African art at the Hood Museum of Art in Dart at Dartmouth College. He has curated at major venues including the Dakar Biennial, the Shanghai Biennial, and is associate curator of the forthcoming La Biennale d'Architecture in Orléans in, Fran in France. And uh, Smoothie's writing, writing has appeared in many academic journals and art magazines, including Art Africa, World Art, Critical Interventions, and Art Basel Miami Beach magazine, amongst others. He's co-editor of New Spaces for Negotiating Art and Histories in Africa, a book of independent spaces in Africa. I didn't see that one. I'm very happy to welcome Sadi Barnett for the first time at Forum. I've been admiring your works ever since I came across this a few years ago, and I'm so sad that I missed your last exhibition in, uh, in New York. Sadi earned her BFA from CalArts and her MFA from the University of California, San Diego. Her work has been exhibited throughout the United States and internationally at venues including the Studio Museum of Harlem, the California African American Museum, and Goodman Gallery in Johannesburg. She lives and works in Oakland uh, and Compton. Welcome to Odili, Donald Odita. I, I always call you Donald, but actually you want to be called Odili. Good. So. Odili was born in Enugu in Nigeria and lives and works in Philadelphia and New York. Odita has been a professor of painting since 20, uh, 2006 at the Tyler School of Art at Temple University in Philadelphia. And prior to that, he has been an associate professor in painting at the, at the Florida State University. He has exhibited in numerous shows in nationally and internationally, including the 52nd Venice Biennial, 
His upcoming projects include a one-person exhibition at the Jack Shainman Gallery in New York, opening in January 20, uh, 2018. So welcome our guests, and I'm sure it's going to be a very, very exciting talk. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Koyo. Uh, thank you all for coming. And um, most especially, thank you, Sadi. Um, I mean, I've, I've been following Sadi's work. And um, actually, we met uh, an hour ago, less than an hour ago. But I've never met her. So, And it's, it's, it's a good thing with this sort of forum that um, it, it's, it, it helps to bring people together, people you might know uh, from a distance. And it, 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 it brings us together. So, so I thank Koyo and 154 for, for making this sort of um, opportunity available to all of us. Um, Odile is someone I've known for a while, mm -hmm. and I've also been following his work um, for a long time now. And um, I felt um, in the very beginning when Koyo told me to, um, to suggest uh, a panel, that I wanted uh, a panel that would really address um, what I consider the most important issue of today. You know, um, I'm an immigrant. Um, Odili was once an immigrant. You're still an immigrant mm -hmm. to an extent. You're an American citizen, you know. And, and whenever I, I speak with people, um, they'll ask me, ask me, where are you from? And I said, well, I teach, uh, well, I work at, uh, at Dartmouth, so I am from Hanover. And they said, I mean, originally, where are you from originally? And then I'll say, oh, well, I'm from Nigeria. And then there's this funny expression on the face, you know, oh, yeah, okay. And often um, you become a marker of otherness on the basis of accent, on the basis of uh, skin color, on the basis of um, religious inclination, uh, on the basis of uh, sexual orientation, you know. And um, I was thinking about all these things, and then I, I came across the work of Tavares Straton, who I had a studio visit with last year. And one of his work that really struck me was the, the title piece that was uh, part of the, um, the uh, Prospect uh, 11, uh, the biennial at uh, uh, New Orleans, uh, which was titled, I Belong Here. And so there's a sense of emphasis in the way um, he makes that sort of argument that I belong here, you know. But at the same time, part of the argument uh, Tavares also makes is that when you think about the, the, the ways of negotiating belonging is very fraught, mm -hmm. you know, and the routes, routes that lead one to be able to make that sort of um, statement is often very loaded. Mm -hmm. And I say this because of uh, the peculiar histories we bring to bear mm -hmm. as, as, um, as people of African descent in the United States. And so to start off, um, the way we'll go is uh, our, um, the artists will sort of give us an insight into their work. Um, it's going to be for 10 minutes, and after which we'll launch uh, into the main conversation. Uh, that's the, the format. But the connection I see between the work of Adili uh, and, the, and the background and the, and the histories of Adili and, and Sadi is uh, the fact that, uh, like I said, uh, Adili in the very beginning um, came to the U.S. Uh, as a child. It was six months uh, when, he came, when he left Nigeria. And the context in which he left Nigeria was uh, because there was um, a civil war in Nigeria. 
And that was the reason why he left Nigeria, why the family left Nigeria for the United States. And you begin to think about um, um, his experience of leaving, his experience of flight uh, in the very beginning and some of the issues that we deal today uh, with the refugee crisis and how often, more often than not, we often think that we, we don't have, even when we're very empathetic uh, to people, uh, we often don't share the, the in, a, in a visceral sense, their stories mm -hmm. because we don't have that experience. So that experience is often abstract, you know, and, and so you think about uh, experiences of people in Libya and, and in the Middle East, and then you think about this current climate of travel bans, you know, um, and, and how people have been pushed uh, out of uh, the equation because of what is happening. And I see that sort of, Adelia, someone who will be able to speak to that uh, because of his own peculiar um, experience. And then on the other hand, it's important to think about when Adelia came to the United States, that was in 1966, mm -hmm. um, at the moment of, um, heightened black nationalism mm -hmm. in the country, uh, where um, uh, the height of civil rights, the height where people, uh, African-Americans, were insisting on their right to uh, be Americans in the real sense of the word. And it was in that moment that um, uh, Sadi's uh, father, uh, Rodney Barnett, uh, who was a member of the Black Panther, uh, came of age uh, po uh, politically. And it's the legacy of the Black Panther uh, party and the legacy of his father that sort of has, has sort of uh, created some kind of uh, intellectual and political basis for for Sadi's practice and so I see that sort of connection between um, Odili's experience and that of uh, uh, Sadi's father uh, then connecting to to Sadi um, and it's, it's it's on that basis that I want us to have this uh, this conversation this sort of connections and how people think about solidarity um, in the black community, solidarity in the black community, but also the different uh, shades of solidarity and how artists in their work continue to address what it means uh, to be, to be, to be um, black, what it means to be a person of uh, color, although I don't like the term, how it, what it means to be the other person in the United States and to think of all that um, and what new strategies uh, artists can evolve um, um, as we address um, the new reality, not only in the United States with Trump, but also the realities that is, um, is spreading all over, all over the world, especially in the, in the Western Hemisphere. You see that there's an election coming up in France. Uh, it's Le Pen versus Macron. Um, there's Brexit, you know, and often, very often than not, it's often the, the so-called other, whatever that means, uh, who, who uh, bears um, um, the, the, the major uh, difficulties of that experience. I'll leave it at that. And so we'll begin with Sadi's um, presentation. It's going to be for 10 minutes, and then Odile is going to follow quickly, and, and then we'll get into the, the conversation. Uh, thank you so much, Smooth, for that introduction, and thank you guys for joining us here today. Take just a moment. <clears throat> Um, so I have some notes with me so that I can be sure to cover everything and get through it quickly so that we can um, converse together. Um, but I'm going to briefly present work engaging the 500-page FBI file um, that was amassed on my father, Rodney Barnett, uh, at the height of COINTELPRO uh, because of his activity with the Black Panthers and with Angela Davis. 
and I'll connect these different material ways of working to the overarching concepts and concerns that run through my work, such as poetry, uh, the need for abstraction in urban life, the power of the personal as political, uh, the everyday, the living room, resistance and transcendence. So this is how um, the project began in my studio when we received these files. Um, my father filed a Freedom of Information Act request about five years ago. It actually took about four years to receive the files and it ended up, co uh, coincidentally, um, we got the files around the 50th anniversary of the Black Panthers. Um, so this work first showed at Oakland Museum in their exhibition, All Power to the People, 50th uh, anniversary of the Black Panthers. Um, and the surveillance was very um, intense. There's uh, harassment, there's paid informants, there's provocateurs at Panther meetings, there's agents observing my dad's daily actions. They interview every employer he's ever had. Um, they interrogate his high school teacher, the little old lady next to where he lived as a child. Um, nothing that my dad did was illegal. In all of these pages, there are no criminal charges, but he's still watched and classified. Um, so the first material intervention that I had with these documents, you know, they're so powerful, um, sort of very painful, um, personal as well as political. So I really wanted to sort of uh, let the files speak for themselves and really just facilitate an experience for the viewer to engage with them on their own. So the first thing I experimented with was adding these splashes of pinks and purple and black spray paint, um, both to sort of reclaim the file and insert my authorship as a daughter looking at her father. Um, also the pages are riddled with redactions and so I wanted to sort of introduce my own language of redactions with the spray paint. Also using spray paint to reference graffiti and my generation um, and tagging and public space. Um, you know, the files themselves are these very uh, late 60s aesthetic of typewriter and uh, teletype and carbon copies and then introducing my generation with the spray paint. Um, so these next images are from a, an exhibition I currently have up at the Minetti Schrem Museum at UC Davis in California. Um, you can see here, this is my dad on the left in 1966 and on the right in 1968. And in the first image, he's wearing his army uniform. So he was drafted to Vietnam and served a 13-month tour there. Um, and when he comes back, he... Uh, comes to LA actually to bury his nephew who was also killed in the Vietnam, who was killed in the Vietnam War. And he says he experienced the police brutality to be so intense um, back in LA and Compton that he felt the police were doing military operations the same that he had done in, um, experienced in Vietnam. And that was really, he cites, one of the uh, reasons that he joined the Black Panthers. Um, and this experience of risking your life and returning home to a country that doesn't have a place for you is something that family members of mine and perhaps yours as well um, have experienced in every single war in American history. Um, and that's a large part of 
why my dad joined the Black Panthers. So he joined the Panthers in LA. Um, there was enough members that he set up the ninth LA chapter in Compton. So this is really like a before and after in a way of politicization. Um, although my dad was always against the war and US imperialism, um, not a lot was known about Vietnam in 1966. You know, it was fairly early on. The anti-war movement wasn't as large. People weren't, uh, you know, burning draft cards. Um, and so he goes and returns, um, you know, changed. <clears throat> Um, so this next material intervention, this is another wall in that exhibition. Um, I mounted pages of the FBI file onto this neon pink plexi. So it gets this sort of otherworldly science fiction dystopian glow um, around the edges. And in this instance, I just selected 28 pages of the 500 pages to really highlight some of the key findings in the file. So here is one page. I'm not sure if you guys can read the text from there, um, but it's an agent observing my father and Angela Davis boarding a plane at San Francisco Art, Art, Art Institute, San Francisco Airport. Um, and this is 11 days after she was acquitted, and there's no charges against my father, so why they're being you know, followed at the airport um, is up for you know, debate. Um, but this was one of those pages that really stuck out to me because of how visceral this moment exists, um, almost in the way that a photograph does. Uh, it has a very ghost-like quality by, you know, just bringing you to that exact moment when they're at the airport with these agents. Um, this is how the informants are listed in the file. There's at least eight informants throughout my dad's file. Uh, many of them later refused to cooperate their own previous testimony. So there's a lot of false information, which is something I grappled with in terms of authorship and perceived ident um, authority or authenticity. You know, things, uh, anything on a government letterhead sort of has this truthiness to it, although it's riddled with lies, um, some of which I left in there for people to, to see themselves. And obviously, you know, none of the names of the informants are available. Um, this is a page talking about security of government employees. Um, my dad was actually fired from his job at the post office for his activity with the Black Panthers. Um, I believe that because they couldn't find anything illegal that he did, um, they went after his employment, which is something that still happens today with activists, um, even with Black Lives Matter activists. That's something that's continuing today. Um, so here they're interviewing uh, various employers and neighbors. Um, so my dad was eventually fired from his job at the post office for cohabitating with a woman who he wasn't married to, was the reason that they found to have him fired. This was 1972. Um, and the law that was used was actually a law put on the books by Truman, which was Executive Order 10450. I feel like we've been talking recently again about executive orders a lot. Um, this executive order was actually used to purge gay people from government jobs. And so it cites behavior unbecoming a government employee. So my dad living with a woman who he wasn't married to, who he had a child with, was considered behavior unbecoming a government employee, and he was fired. 
Um, and to me, you know, that law is one of those perfect examples where we think, uh, you know, oh, well, this law isn't about me. This is about someone else. You know, I'm not an immigrant or I'm not Muslim. That's not about me. But these laws can be used whoever the government feels, uh, you know, is inconvenient at, at the time. Um, so this is his statement to the post office. Um, and I think it's very powerful how you can hear um, this just very eloquent, earnest uh, opinion of, you know, morality and why he should be able to choose how he's living his own life. Um, and then me reading it years later through the lens of the FBI just has a lot of layers to it. Um, in the exhibition, I adorned this page with rhinestones around his statement to really like honor that earnest voice that he has. Um, so you can see here he is committing the crime um, of living with this woman and their child. Uh, he's also wearing his post, his post office uniform in this photo, so it's really the third uh, uniform in these sort of uh, very American uniforms from the military to the Black Panthers and the post office. Um, and you can see these photographs also exist on this wallpaper that I created from stamps directly from the file. So there's these confidential stamps. Um, there's a stamp that reads racial interest section in case you're you know, forgetting why they're being surveilled. Uh, there's a rubber stamp you know, on hundreds of desks to remind you. Um, this page is one of many talking about my dad's military service. Um, he was wounded in Vietnam and so received a, a purple heart. And so I've adorned these pages with purple hearts. Uh, it's really, you know, a small, almost naive and like necessarily failing gesture to try to heal the trauma of these files with these rhine store or, uh, you know, craft store gems. Um, but it sort of calls attention to the impossible act of trying to reclaim this work or these, this document. Um, this page is recommending my dad for ADICS Category 1 list, which is an apprehension and detention program list, which was basically a list of American citizens who could be rounded up and detained at any moment. So because of my dad's work with the uh, Panthers, he was considered an extremist and put on this list. Um, Many of you have probably recently seen I Am Not Your Negro about Baldwin. Um, and you might remember there's also a section talking about him being on this security index list as well. Um, this page is listing deceased members of the party. Um, so many of you might know John Huggins and Bunchy Carter who were assassinated at UCLA while organizing with the BSU there. Um, and these pages really were you know, very painful reminders of how lucky I am that my dad is alive. Um, many people aren't so lucky. Many people were murdered at the time. People were thrown in jail. Families were torn apart. People are still in jail um, because of their activity, even as we celebrate the 50th anniversary. Um, so there's crowns adorning these names. Uh, these are two graphite pencil drawings. So that's another way that I work by bringing in the element of hand um, and labor to render the mugshot on the left here, which is the one image in the file, and J. Edgar Hoover's 
signature uh, is also a pencil drawing. Um, so there you can see a detail of the drawing. And I was really thinking about, you know, how the, this, uh, this is exactly how the image appeared in the file. So it had obviously been photocopied many, many times um, and spread across many desks. And, you know, how many times does something have to get photographed before it's no longer a photograph of my father, but is just like male, black, you know, anonymous, um, criminalized figure, and just how the aesthetics of a mugshot work to instantly criminalize someone. Um, so the last wall in this exhibition has more of these uh, sort of abstract uh, collages created from images of my family or photographs I take around Oakland and sort of liberating these characters from their known environments into these glitterscapes, which are these transcendent uh, imaginary spaces that exist outside of state repression and state surveillance and perhaps are only imaginary. And this is a large drawing, about 50 inches, um, pencil on paper, really embodying this intergenerational conversation of Dear 1968, which is an iconic year uh, both here and internationally, and then Love 1984, which is the year I was born, um, but also a year that sort of exists in the public imagination even before it arrives, like with George Orwell's book, it was sort of you know viewed as the future. Um, the letter is essentially left blank because I don't exactly have the words of what to say. You know, it's an apology, it's a love letter, it's questions, um, but really just spending like the hundreds of hours drawing this is sort of creating some type of alchemy, I hope. Um, this last image I'll close with is uh, my father holding me um, on these two glitter scapes. And it's really elevating uh, the sort of radical act of black fatherhood and childhood and joy. Um, you know, something that our people are not always afforded, right? You're not guaranteed uh, innocence or childhood childhood or even survival um, in this country. So to take these characters and sort of um, bring them into this celestial space filled with more possibilities. Um, so thank you, I think that was a bit thank more you. than 10 minutes, but. Um, I, first of all, I'd just like to thank everybody for being here today. Um, that was really, I really liked what you had to say and it was really, I think it's just really important to share these stories, um, individual stories about, um, um, that will culminate as otherness with this talk, but just stories like this so we can understand better what we can possibly do in this country and in the world, in fact, you know. Um, my name is Odili Donald Udita, I'm a painter. Um, I have a long tradition of uh, making paintings and wall installations. Uh, I'm mostly familiar with, mostly understood by that type of work, but before uh, going into the painting um, full on, I was doing um, mixed media, photo-based work in New York City in the early 90s, 1990s. Um, I got to New York uh, in the 90s uh, at the beginning of, um, um, I would call, a, art world concerns of identity politics. Um, I was um, painting for a little bit in the early 90s and then I stopped painting only because I just felt that painting wasn't really a vehicle that I could actually 
uh, adequately address a lot of the things that I was ex experiencing and understanding as a African um, or, and as a Nigerian in America. Um, so when I started working through these images, I was collecting images in, in, in newspapers, just in the media space, just wanting to investigate the interpretation of the black body in media. Um, with this piece, uh, uh, toward the end of this work, it was called Authentic African. Uh, this piece really was based on an American question and a question I got while I was in school. Um, my family, as you heard, uh, left Nigeria uh, at the start of the Biafran War, right before the uh, airports were shut down and people couldn't leave anymore. My father had come to the States uh, uh, prior to my birth uh, on, on scholarship um, and then he gained further scholarship to go to the States with the family uh, and to pursue his, uh, um, his uh, career as an academic and art historian founding the History of African Art program at the uh, Ohio State University. I always think about the idea of, of war and the reality of war, and it's been addressed in a certain sense of the vagaries of these things, how we can see atrocities on the news but not necessarily uh, acquire access to them. They're only images on the news or on, in nowadays on, on, on the computer or on the, uh, on the iPhone, uh, the, the, the cell phone. The thing is to, when you, when you like, like an artwork outside of uh, the image you see online, uh, like an atrocity in reality, to actually encounter it with the body and the head, the mind and the body in, this, in the space of it is to really fully understand um, uh, the concept, the situation, and its consequences. Uh, so this is why I was really uh, uh, touched by what you were saying. So uh, here, this work, it's called Authentic African. I was thinking about this question presented to me by students uh, while I was in school. A little kid, you know, they found out that I was um, from Africa, you know, specifically Nigeria, but from Africa. And they'd ask questions like, if you were going to school, would you have to run past the snake and uh, over a tiger and pass the snake to get to the front door of the building? You know, these kinds of things, silly things that kids do say to each other. But being a kid with growing emotional, um, trying to st stabilize yourself emotionally and intellectually, these kind of questions were extremely hurtful. So I basically wanted to investigate through identity politics, through photography, investigate these kinds of situations, these questions. And the series of these four images I made and created four African types of the time. And uh, each one of them is uh, framed in this kind of stitched outline to be representative of some kind of coupon cutout or clipping with the yes and no underneath these images for the audience to be able to answer this question for themselves of authenticity and Africanness. Um, this next piece uh, was, a, again, a photo-based piece that I made a little bit earlier. This is actually a small piece. Um, I was doing collage. I was, uh, again, collecting these images and thinking as a painter through photography or thinking as a painter through media. Um, this piece called End or Fen, uh, it's, it's, it's a play on words, you know, Fen, Fin, French for end, end or end, uh, endorphin, uh, endorphins used uh, in, uh, uh, created bodily in the moments of excitement, let's say in hunting, in, in thrill-seeking activities, things like this. 
Um, Okuyen-Wazor saw this image and used it for the um, Johannesburg Biennale in 1997, his first big project. For him, the image represented how he understood the black male, which was as just existing as a living target at this time. And this was at the beginning of the reconciliation uh, commission and trials during, during um, uh, in, within South Africa. And we had this exhibition and experienced um, uh, the country during this time. Um, let's go to the next piece. Mirror, this piece was made in experience of the space with an understanding that I would be doing a wall installation of this type, which is really um, simply iron oxide, black iron oxide, and uh, affixed to the wall with just house paint as a binder. So I'm using the painting practice as a, as a sort of a um, fluxist moment. I was in the space, I had no idea what the work would become, but I found a mirror and this is in Poland. I found a mirror in one of the back rooms. I said, that looks, that just looks good. Let me just take this mirror. I took it to the wall, traced an outline around it with pencil, taped it off, and then just put this pigment into the space. And for me, the, the, the piece, I mean, when I look at it with hindsight, I think of it just like, wow, this is the opposite of what I was seeing at airports as I started to travel around the world. Uh, I would always see groups of African bodies, people sitting on their bags in stairwells or escalator spots or places throughout the airport where you knew that they were not really, they, were, they weren't here nor there, they were just stuck in some middle space because as I was experiencing back then when I still had my Nigerian passport, certain countries wouldn't let you off the plane in connection to where you were destined because of the in my case, the Nigerian passport. So this sense of dislocation, um, of, of, of neither here nor thereness, was, was, was answered to a certain extent with this piece when I fixed myself in Poland onto this white wall, and I said, I'm here. This material itself is interesting because as, a, as, a, as an aesthetic material, it's, uh, it's very black. Um, when I put it on the wall and the way it does, it looks like skin and, and outer space at the same time. So it's this notion of, of, of bodiness in its materiality and presentness and space in its imagistic pictorial, pictorialness. Uh, and at the same time, this kind of one-on-one -on -one association with it as a mirror shape. Uh, this work kind of grew into this piece. Uh, it did actually grow into this piece in another's context. Uh, here I'm thinking of the idea of black as abstract and the abstractness that would lead to a certain kind of um, uh, vagueness, a misunderstanding, if you will, or in a generalizing encompassing of, of experience. So I wanted to deal with this term black as a, as a, a it through color and to speak about specificity and uniqueness through color. So what I did is I came to this space and I actually was just gonna do this piece on a white wall. I just didn't even plan for the black wall. I came in, the wall was black, and then they said, oh, we're sorry, we'll paint this wall out as quickly as possible. I was like, you do not paint that wall out. This is perfect. And um, I share this because it's uh, this story about the wall, that black wall and the color there because it's very important uh, to understand that the artistic moment is so much about 
a presentness, a present sense of experience and being where you have to take yourself, who you are, and work with the moment and work with the energies of the moment, not necessarily realizing at the time the outcome that you'll have, but being able to trust yourself to go forward with some whatever foundation you might have to trust yourself to move forward. So I put these eight pigmented shapes, which were the scale of my own body, onto the wall, and hence move this position of black into the more, more into the specific through color. The work goes on and I'm starting to, you know, think about the wall and uh, in different ways and thinking about how I can access space and inhabit space in different ways. I was asked in this exhibition called Surface Charge, curated by Gregory Volk and Sabina Roos, to do an installation, a room installation. And this was really the first time I was given this kind of a situation of working solely on the wall um, in this means. And I took it to, an, uh, uh, I think I pushed it to another end. There was this room with four walls. There was a way of traveling through the space where she is that was an office behind this wall. And she's basically in the corridor space that leads to the two doors that go, there's a doorway here and a doorway there. So the energy of the room was, is one way. And then this space where this wall is opposite this wall, that is a different, was a different kind of energy or different formation. And I just said, let me just observe this room. Let me be in this room for a little bit of time and see what I can do. I liked that door. And on the other end of the wall was just this, what I thought and saw only as blankness. And I wanted to ask about, for myself, this question about painting and the idea of color the idea of painting and the idea of openness and the idea of possibility on one hand, and this wall, black and whiteness, and the notions of binary, and the limits that black and white or binary thinking can create. And so I made these bars, these black bars are all pigmented along this wall to create this prison cell or window cell or bar sort of situation. and. What happened, and this is also experiential, is this air conditioning unit became really a part of that visual field. And it enhanced what that thing does with the work as what the door does with this work. A certain kind of maybe air conditioning in prison or the institution versus this notion of this arch and door, entry and access into this field of color. Then there's this piece um, I did in 2006 at Jack Shaman Gallery. This title is called Anagata de Vida, and it's a song from, it's a title from a, a song by Iron Butterfly. The word actually to be said um, is in the Garden of Eden. That's the actual sentence that they couldn't sing because they were out of sorts when they made the song in the studio. <laughs> out of sorts. <laughs> But I was thinking about this title in the sense of what if we can't say that word? What do we have the inability of saying in the Garden of Eden? What if something is stopping us from acquiring this space or something is stopping us from entering this space? What, what is that notion or what is that, what is that understanding of this impossibility to just simply say in the Garden of Eden, this confusion? That piece led to the, to this piece here at the uh, Venice Biennale, 
uh, curated by Rob Store. Uh, this work was centered be, uh, uh, between Sigmar Polke's paintings that you see in the other room and Nancy Spiro's really great introduction to the space uh, hanging before this room. Uh, I really wanted to engage painting as, as a space to inhabit or be inhabited. And I was given this opportunity with this room to really engage also the notion of specificity. How can I enter a place as an artist traveling to the place and speak within the space, not coming in as some kind of tourist or some kind of celebrity just to make something and then leave, pack your bags and leave after you finish, but to make something that actually exists as a part of the experience of the space. And so I was thinking and looking at the water, uh, looking at the arches, looking at the light uh, that was Venice for me. And this is what this space was for me, like the canals in Venice, like the vaporettos and the boats and just traveling through history and time and realizing that, as the title says, that you can have, possibly have shelter uh, in, this, in the space of art, in the space of painting. What was really most profound about this piece, I realized, was that um, um, people would, and this is the first time I saw this sort of thing happen, people would stand in front of any particular part of the wall, face their partner and say, right here. And then their partner would flash, take a picture of them. So like the pigmented mirror shape that I put onto the wall, the individual themselves were finding some kind of home in this painting and saying, I'm here, or this is how I want to be remembered right now. This is what I want to take with me right now. This is my space right now. And uh, that flummoxed me. I just didn't even think that uh, something like that could happen, that people would individually pick their moments and pick their spot and do that sort of thing of locating themselves within a space. So. The work has expanded. I've done a lot of different uh, projects in different places. And ultimately, it's, it's about experiencing what is possible with painting, the possibility of painting, the possibility of how a painting can exist in this space and transform a space. And hence, really, it's for me about the idea of freedom, like what we can do as artists to be able to decide how we can interact with the world. This is the last slide, our house at, uh, in Philadelphia. Okay. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Sadi. Thank you, Adili. Um, I think that what is uh, quite um, striking for me, uh, thinking about uh, your works, is how the, the, uh, the, the personal becomes very political. You know, um, in your own case, um, it's uh, through the legacy of your father. Uh, but Adele, in your own case, it's really a question of uh, how how you could find yourself mm -hmm. um, in an American context. Mm -hmm. You know, and of course, um, the experience of understanding your Nigerianness mm -hmm. through your your home mm -hmm. in the U.S., not in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in Ohio. And so, uh, what I, w I would want um, both of you to flesh out is how that sense of um, the personal, when it meets, how, how, how does one then think about um, uh, 
the person that was very political in connection with the community, you know, uh, how does one move beyond um, um, personal ways of negotiating, say, a fraught history, but to begin to consider um, how, um, how one can um, engage uh, with uh, broader issues uh, that, that make sense to a community. And I'll say, for example, um, um, and, and this will be uh, to you. Um, you want to think about the Black Lives uh, Movement, you know, and in a, in a sense, you think of the Black Lives Movement as sort of upholding the legacy of uh, um, the, the civil rights and all that, and some of the things that were fought for um, in the 1960s, you know. And, but as, as an aesthetic strategy, how does one's work as, as, as an artist move to intersect with some of those issues that have been raised uh, by, by such movements? And in, 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 in what ways can, can, can that um, engagement be nuanced as opposed to being, um, how do I put it, uh, being um, lacking the complexity of, 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 of the conversations uh, that should hold, you know? So for example, when I think of your work, I think about uh, what you, uh, third space, uh, what you describe as third space. Um, sort of finding um, that liminal space in conversations as opposed to things being either this or that, you know? Um, and, and so when I, when I want to think about um, how we make that transition uh, to, to engaging with, with, with broader issues, I want to, I'm more interested in how one can articulate complexity in connection with, uh, with, with the, uh, the collective agenda, you know, because it's easier with the personal, you know, but with the community, with people having different uh, ideas about what the collective argument should be. How does one as an artist, how does your practice? Uh, can I, can I say something real quick about that? I mean, maybe this is for me appropriate to use as an image for your question in the sense that this is titled Our House. Uh, this building is particularly important. It holds the, um, it's next to the Brandywine Workshop and Archives, which is um, black owned uh, and run uh, in Philadelphia by Alan Edmonds. Uh, it's also next to, this building over is the Clef Club, which is historically important in Philadelphia because it was a space for black musicians to gather after performing uh, in white clubs uh, there, uh, where they were able to actually relax and, 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 and play music and engage and just uh, be together as musicians, as a, as club, in, in a club membership format. Um, this piece on this house is representative of my understanding of Philadelphia and the this and thatness of it. Okay, the, the, there's, a design, there's a line in it that goes diagonal, which is splits that image. Because I'm speaking, I want to speak toward the this and that, the black and the white, the yin and yang of experience, the positive and negative, and say, on one hand, this, this space is at, at schism, where the house is, is looking as if it's going to slide apart. On the other hand, it's a point of being able to understand that problem or a polemic that exists and what can we can do, what we can do as a society or as a community to realign things. The colors themselves are represented, I see them as representative of type, mind, being, space, uh, these, just these different sorts of forms and um, in a way that we can look at community as different groupings or gatherings of people, you know. So we have to be open to difference and we have to understand, we, we learn, I think we not only learn from looking into ourselves and our own history, but looking into other histories where we can actually um, just, um, I, 
simply further package what we're gathering, have more opportunity, have more examples of, of, of means and ways towards uh, success in, 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 in uh, fighting or contesting against things that uh, are, are just not justifiable, right? So um, in this work and as an artist, I'm always trying to engage uh, so many different things outside of the, the, just the mere practice of, or the institutional practice of art to be able to strengthen and, 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 and connect myself then to the greater, um, this greater community. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the personal and the political are, you know, inextricably linked, I think, um, of this like symbiotic relationship uh, where they each push content and meaning uh, further together. Um, just as, you know, the specificity can make a character or an object more universal, I think, um, by, you know, making this piece about my father, it's clearly about many people's fathers and many people's histories. Um, but the personal specific nature of it being one father-daughter relationship, I think makes it easier for people to see how everyone who was fighting uh, was fighting for that, for family, or to see that everyone who was being surveilled also had this more complex life behind them. Great. And so in your case, Adeli, when, when you said you made a switch, there was an obvious switch you made um, quite early on in your career to, to the representational, you know, uh, at, the, at the height of identity politics. Mm -hmm. um, in a way, it, you felt it was, it was a much more, I would say, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, um, it's a, a, a graspable vehicle for the community, you know, that if you're making a statement, people will really understand where you're coming from. Primarily it was graspable for me, and in, in fact, just as an artist, graspable mm -hmm. for me to be able to use this as a vehicle, those, that information as a vehicle mm -hmm. to communicate, to learn and then communicate through these um, uh, ideas, mm -hmm. through that positionality. Mm -hmm. um, what I've understood with painting as I, I got, ba I was able to go back into it was to realize uh, a certain amount of personal freedom in the sense of that I don't have to perform based on conditions or based on uh, perspectives or based on constructs superimposed upon my being as an African or even as an artist. That uh, as an artist, you're able to be able, if, you're, if you are self-aware enough, self-possessed enough, you're able to expand the ideas of what you can do and how you can act in that field, in that notion. So it's not necessarily like, oh, um, I'm, going, I'm a black artist that uses black bodies mm. and that's how I'm supposed to speak forever. Mm. And it's not like, oh, if you use painting, you're not saying anything but being decorative and, mm. and, and so on and so forth. Mm. It's to understand what celebration means. Mm. You know, you spoke about it yourself, you know, the, the whole notion of how we in, in certain cultures uh, have historically fiercely celebrated and in that is the is the is the is the vitality of, of that cultural experience of vitality of those people mm. of these people mm. yet on the other hand we have which is very exemplary exemplary in our current regime here in this country mm. where you have the desire to suppress celebration mm. to make people feel depressed and weak-willed mm. so that they just give up and don't don't 
fight and, mm. and, and really mm. don't live. Mm. So I was wondering um, how would you would respond to what he describes as um, making yourself also graspable, you know, uh, to the community. Um, and, and I would say beyond the work of your father, um, working with, uh, I would say, your father's um, historical memory, um, you've also found other ways of engaging with um, the, the, the black experience beyond, beyond the specificity of that father-daughter experience, you know. I know you've worked with graffiti and all that. Can you speak a little bit more about your practice beyond the, the more recent uh, work uh, connected to your father's legacy? Sure, I mean, I think my work has always been about my family, whether uh, through the series of drawings I was doing during my time at studio museums, mm -hmm. that was literally the names in my patriarchal lineage, mm -hmm. or whether it's uh, photographs, you know, in the interiors of my aunt's house in Compton. Mm -hmm. You know, when, I, when my aunt moved to Compton, they were the first black family on the block. Mm -hmm. This was in 1952. Mm -hmm. um, it was all white mm -hmm. in Compton. Um, so these family stories are always a part of the work. I think of my family and many uh, black American families really as serving uh, as this beautifully uh, poetic sort of support system of mm. resistance and of celebration mm. um, and becomes this political act, although it's in private um, mm. and is really, you know, exists beyond these inter personal relationships, but really is the structure of our community um, for purposes of survival and also just because we are amazing people with, uh, you know, so much, uh, so much to, t to tell. Mm. So I think it's uh, always been easy for it to be of the community since that's, you know, what uh, the lexicon of my characters mm. and environments consists of. I'm going to ask one more question, and now I'm going to open it up to the audience. And, and the question is really, um, when, it's when you make art, um, I mean, given all those, uh, the issues you, you engage with, uh, what sort of audience uh, do you have in mind? I mean, is your audience um, so people who share your experience? Is your audience a uh, universal audience? If so, how do you make those connections uh, with um, the different audiences? I mean, I think for me, there's always multiple audiences. Mm. So I'm imagining there's going to be one, you know, audience that gets the art historical references. There's mm. going to be one audience that gets the hip hop references, mm. and there will be another audience that gets both. Mm. Um, and that's exciting. But to me, I've always been able to. It's always been important to me that work can exist in many different contexts, mm. and it hasn't ever. It's never felt like um, a sacrifice or a struggle to speak to both. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the, the best work um, inherently brings value in languages that it might not um, necessarily mean to, but it manages to hold up um, in those contexts, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, I, I would just say 100% the same. Uh, it's, it's, you, your audiences even grow bigger than y you could even imagine. They just, you, you, you have people come back to you and say uh, this or share that with you based on the work that they've seen and you couldn't even imagine that you would reach or your work could communicate to that person per se. But it's, it's, it is about that great work can have reach great, great number of people and um, you know, I think that that's what um, 
is really important about that kind of thing. You want to have dialogue. You know, you want to build, you want to share the story and have people become part of that story too. Yeah. All right, uh, do we have questions? Hi, my name is Ade Jokai. I'm a visual artist. Uh, I wanted to thank you all for your um, amazing presentation, Sadie. I really loved your final piece of yourself with your father, um, particularly thinking about um, the state of black men in this country, the number of black men in prison, and the celebration of your love, the love between you and your dad um, in that frame, I think is really powerful. And Odelia, as you know, um, as always, you've always been very inspiring to my work, your philosophy and your, your aesthetic. Um, and my question is particularly to you. You started working with um, circles and you talked about mirror and um, end the fin. Um, there are a lot of circular movements within your lines where you start shifting later into linear movements. Um, but that I, I think about the circle and the line a lot in my own work and I'm just wondering if Philosophically, you sort of broadened this idea of the circle to meaning, you know, community, nation, or even your worldview per se. And then, are your lines sort of like the movements between that? Just what that shift means for you aesthetically and philosophically? Right. Um, you know, I, I initially really thought of I, I initially thought of the circle as something my father always told me about like the notion of the tree in African culture, the importance of the tree in African culture, you know, the notion of the idea of the roots into the trunk, into the uh, leaves and the fruit from the leaves and then falling into the ground to feed back into the tree, you know, the cycle of life um, idea. And then I, 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 as I was gotten to graduate school, I realized that this circle could also become some kind of dead loop in the way that uh, the circle is really the emblem of mo modernism or modernity and that it feeds into itself. It doesn't go outside of itself. It always comes back into its own beingness. Whatever it encompasses, it's always about this space. Outside of it is nothing. Inside of it is everything. You know? So I later started to think of the circle as not necessarily broken, but but like, you know, spiraling in a directional. So as to say that it's, 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 it, it has time, movement, and it's open in the way that it, yes, that it's open in that sense. So everybody has their way with, I mean, if you're thinking in this way, this is a particular way, aesthetic way, philosophic way, you can understand through experience, your own experiences, what these might mean. And if you look at them more, which is really important, is to understand what you're doing. If you're only reiterating social order and, and, and constructions that deny, or if you're opening up against and opening things up so that we can actually reinterpret and renew you know, understandings in a way that they, we can maybe find different directions, different ways. Okay, Victor. 
Um, good afternoon, everybody. Yes. Good to see you, Adili. It's yes. been a while. Yes. <laughs> um, in looking at, listening to both of you uh, make your presentations, I tend to uh, I, uh, sort of maybe because I'm working on these pieces about memory, that seems to resonate with me about how your memories, you know, about forming your identities and and what you do with that. And um, so the, the question from your daily was, some of these works that you've done in all these spaces, what happens to them afterwards? Um, if they're not necessarily made or signed in a, in a certain kind of, um, if, not, if, they're not, if it's not a permanent commission, they're, they're wiped away. Okay. Um, they're, um, they're wiped over, which is fine for me. I totally am absolutely fine with that because I, I, as a student in school, I love this artist, Om Kuara, where he just made like um, postcards sent out that said, I'm here. Okay. That was the art, you know, just I'm here to send it out to his friends. I, I like this idea of just having a, a studio from a suitcase, if you will, or this idea of, I love dancers, I love theater and performance, and this notion of you have to be there to see it. If you don't, it ends and it goes away. Okay. And so there's this notion of impermanence that makes that experience even more important. And it's like a life itself. It's very much like a life itself. Yeah, that, that was what I was uh, interested in because it seems it's, it's one of some of the, um, the concepts that I'm working on in certain aspects of my work about memory as an ephemeral condition that um, always shifts and changes and is affected by circumstances. And yeah. Yeah. And so, so that's answering that it wipe, gets wiped away and you're detached from it. It's I, I, can I say, so I really like what you said. I mean, I think a lot about the things you said, and I think it's really important what she's saying about her father and access. See, because it's really an access point. People can talk about memories, right? And we can, we can try to share the experience of memory. But you created, through your dad and through what happened to him, you create an entry for other people that then have relationship. And that's really important because how do you get into somebody else's space? I mean, how do you fit, and literally unless you put that shoe onto your foot, you're not gonna know what it is to be in someone else's shoe. So your, your dad's experience becomes this like platform for us to be able to enter and think of what would happen if if, if I had, if I'm hanging out with somebody, if I'm with somebody and I, and I lose my job and this attack and how do I keep myself together to be able to, to address this issue because they've just taken away my livelihood. The government, which has the money beyond belief, is attacking me as an individual because of my beliefs, da, 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 da. So I just wanted to say that, that's, that those are the ways in which artists or storytellers or people, all of you guys out there in the audience who are able to if you're able to go out and want, and want to engage in conversations that could create some change, you have to, and you, you have to find those points of entry and access where both of, you can, both of you can convene and share and create and change and, and all of that stuff. And I think that, that whatever happens in that space is really um, uh, valuable, but to understand that it's not just only sunny days and happiness, and it's not just warring and staying in the opposite sides of the space, but understanding that it's negotiation and it's engagement. That's all I want to say about that. Yes. Yeah. 
Do we have any other question? Um, I hesitate because it's more of a collection of thoughts that I would love to ask, but um, the title of the panel kind of being about art in the age of a resurgence of nationalism at a point in which in my personal, and I think also in other people's intellectual thinking, we were kind of moving past, or in the hopes of moving past the framework of the nation state. Um, I think both because of globalization and this whole idea that the world has become one, and also just the violence that has been the result of nationhood from both domestic um, with quid pro quo and other other experiences, especially of marginalized bodies as well as internationally. But now, in this moment of kind of a re resurgence of, of nationalism and no longer being able to kind of pretend that that's the direction we're moving in, I'm wondering if conceptually or intellectually that changes the way that you engage and with the in your work um, or if it just that's not really the way that you're structuring it if you're just kind of continuing to engage with more specific questions um, instead of conceptually and related thing um, just about your aesthetic language because I I love both of your work um, and I'm just wondering about the kinds of aesthetic languages that appeal to you um, and whether you see your work in relationship to any particular history of that or an amalgamation. Or um, I mean, I guess the first point of your question, I mean, you know, I've been working on this work before Trump, I'll continue to work on it after. Um, I mean, I think one thing about working with these FBI files, you know, it's sort of stretched uh, the length of time that I'm viewing political changes. I think we think things change very fast, um, but I, I think uh, a, a longer view can perhaps add perspective, which can be, um, both hopeful and also terrifying. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover was the director of the FBI for 48 years um, and was really you know, unaccountable and unchecked that entire time. Um, no one outside of the office uh, or of the bureau saw his secret files until 1971, um, except for when he would invite people into his office to listen to like salacious um, recordings. So, you know, thinking about that time span of 48 years or thinking about uh, it being the 50th year anniversary of the Black Panthers now, um, to me, sort of uh, allows for some patience and calm in the studio and, uh, you know, continuing the work that we do and realizing that, you know, you don't know when is the beginning and when is the middle and when in the end is the end of a history or of a cycle of resurgence or um, a backlash. Um, so you keep doing what you're doing. Um, I think in terms of the um, aesthetic you know, conversations, it's like a Venn diagram of many different things overlapping, um, at times even contradictory things. Uh, I think, you know, I often think of um, 
hip hop and this sort of aesthetic of sampling and layering and collaging and reframing as opposed to generating uh, new sounds at times is a way that I often approach um, image making and collecting. Um, I'm also influenced by modernism and by the minimalists who would be having a completely different conversation but who are still a part of my, my visual language. I don't, I'm sure you have sort of mm -hmm. similar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, when, when Trump won the election, I couldn't make work for a long time. I was basically not making any work in my studio for months after. I mean, right now it's, it's May, right? But um, uh, I was sitting through this November, then December, then you know January. I mean, projects that had started were just in their completion, but I'm talking about me stepping into my studio and thinking as an artist. And uh, February into 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 March, I just like was depressed for a while. I was really sh shocked. I was upset. How could people? Uh, and then people speaking in support of the person. How how understanding what value and intellectual state was going into his rhetoric and the support of that individual is like I can't believe this. You know, I just cannot believe, um, oh my God. So I was uh, just uh, 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 speechless uh, as an artist. Um, I, I started to realize for myself though that, you know, like in, the, in, this, in this bullying force that in the force of bullies, bullies, they want to, they want to, they want to scare. You know, they want to, they want to silence they want to overpower and 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 i realize you know you, you you can't acquiesce to bullies you can't just be forced to like go silent because of a of a bully and so then i started to just reflect on the idea of, for me really it's just celebration and how metaphysic that is you know what that really means when i look at a a, a cultural body that has suffered so much cultural bodies, not only the black body, other bodies that have suffered so much and produced so much in the, despite it. And then I start to really reflect on what the potential of celebration can be. Not just party, 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 but real action for change. And, um, you know, so on an aesthetic, sense that's that's how I was able to like function again as a thinking person in my studio as an active person in my studio and I, I, I think we have a really great moment with the Whitney Biennial it's really interesting what's happening with this you know the Emmett Till story there and we have to think about it in this way it's not about pointing fingers and blaming people and saying this person's wrong or this person's right it's a matter of understanding what the action is did the action actually change did one action say the painting change the situation that we understand, the institutional, structural, and philosophic, uh, 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 activist nature of things? Or did it only reiterate? What about when somebody stands there by themselves with a t-shirt that says Black Death Spectacle in front of this painting? Does that change or affect the dialogue or advance the dialogue in any particular way? What's at risk and what's performed? and what are the result of that. I think the greatest action was Emmett Till's mother opening that casket.
That's profound. That addressed change in the greatest way I could ever imagine at that moment. And that's what I then try to make an equal, I try to equalize. Was this painting to that level? Was this person with this t-shirt by himself to that level? And is this conversation we're having around all of this to that level? Which is it? You know? And that's where I want to, that's why I'm thinking about things. Right, I think this is a very interesting way, um, a way to put it. Um, I mean, I, I recall uh, our earlier conversation earlier in the day where we talked about um, experiences, you know, and, and how the shape of those different experiences uh, impact us one, one way or the other. And but how we can also, um, I'm losing my, my line of thought quickly. Um, but just to get, to, get, to get back to the, the, what you said about the Emet uh, Till piece and if there's equivalence with um, the actual work itself and the response to the work by the audience and the value of the action of Emet's mother when she opened that casket. You know, I think it was that question I was trying to ask in the very beginning when I said, when we make art that, that speaks political, is that art able to capture the complexity, the complexity, the complexity. of the issues at stake? You know, that was the question I asked in the beginning when I said, how does the personal as political engage with the collective in ways that is very profound? You know? And I think you've been able to get back to that question. You know? So, Shield's response, did it really speak? Um, was there a spectacle about it, or did it really open real conversation mm -hmm. around those issues? I think the work was is timely, you know. Um, it's timely. It's timely, you know. D did was it able to generate enough context for us to engage with what is critically at stake today? That is the other question. Or is you it know. a superficial or was it superficial? Of you know, you know. Black Lives Matter. Yes, you know. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the questions, you know. But is it timely? I think it's timely, you know. Um, but then again, there's also the question of who, of ownership and authorship around experiences, you know. In a way, in your own case, I mean, uh, there's a sense of legitimacy when we, when you want to think about your relationship to your father and to the Black Panther experience, you know. What if I, for example, decide to engage with that experience without having um, sort of that direct, um, in a way, ownership to that experience? How would we conceive of what I do, uh, the, the politics of what I do? I mean, I see that sort of uh, parallel to what happened around the Immetal experience, you know. So does that shift uh, the impact of the sort of conversation that work wants to engender? because of uh, the questions around access to, to, to the experience? I mean, it's an open question, really. I mean, yes. <laughs> okay, we're, <laughs> we're out of time. <laughs> so I would, I would appreciate one more question from the audience, and then, and then we, uh, we go down to look at work, or wait for the next panel. Any other question?
All right. Uh, thank you so much, Sadie. Thank you, Adelwood. <laughs>